Grab your Bible or a Bible or your phone or wherever you read the Bible from these days and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's in the Old Testament. It's one of the first few books there if you're not familiar. Just start from the beginning there and the book that's titled The Beginning and find Deuteronomy and get to chapter 6. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I want to celebrate a couple of things. Um, as I was at the fair and rodeo this week and as I was at the fiddle contest yesterday, I was reminded that it doesn't happen very often that you gather in a place where there are a multitude of generations. Mostly in our world today, we separate ourselves. Oh, I don't like that type of music or I'm not... Uh, into that kind of uh, livestock contest or fiddle music is not necessarily my genre or whatever it may be. Gerald reminded me yesterday as he looked around and he did his quick count and then added and subtracted and divided and multiplied and did all the statistical things that he could do in his mind. And I'm talking about him while he's not in here. Uh, he, was, he was to tell me quickly that about 95% of the folks at the fiddle contest yesterday were older than him. And if you know him as he walked out, uh, he's pretty old. And so, um, so I was reminded, thinking this morning as I, was watch, as I watch and as I worship with you, and I think about the multitude of generations in this room this morning, and as we sing together, as we sing with one voice, as we sing together to our one true God. No other place does that happen. And that's something to celebrate, that we can have different age groups lead on stage together, and that we have different age groups sing in harmony together to our one true God. And it's a great picture, a great picture of what the kingdom of heaven actually looks like. Also, to make you aware, something not to celebrate necessarily, but to make you aware of. You know, and probably yesterday, if you were any uh, familiar with with uh, news at all, uh, you recognize how divided our world is still, and how Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells us that there will be a day where every tribe, every tongue, every nation will come together and worship Jesus. And the kingdom is to look like that, multi-generational, multicultural. And so in our day and time when cultures can't come together because of different views and generations can't come together because of differing views and differing uh, preferences and all those things. The church is the picture of heaven. The church is the picture of generations coming together, of cultures coming together to worship the one true God under the forgiveness of the one Savior, the only way to the one true God. And that's something that we have to work towards. That we as a congregation, we set our mind towards Calvary, we set our mind towards the completed work of Christ, and we think about those things, about the, the fact that the completed work of Christ is multi-generational, and the completed work of Christ is multicultural, and the church represents that and gives this picture of heaven to the rest of the world. So as we continue talking about disciple-making, We've been going through it. I don't know if we have the image or not. We're going through a little series here thinking about being on mission here in Lovington, about you being called and I being called as a missionary here in Lee County or here in Lovington. We've talked about things like hospitality. 
and how we serve this hospitable Savior who um, graciously welcomes us into his home, welcomes us into his family, uh, gives us an opportunity to have an inheritance, though we are not deserving of that. And so we, we talked about this hospitable Savior and how we are to model that and be hospitable ourselves. And we talked about evangelism. And evangelism really being the statement of how great is our God. That he is a hospitable, compassionate abounding in love, forgiving Father who welcomes us into his home, who, who is this great being that though we are undeserving of, of coming into his presence, he allows us into his presence through the forgiveness, through the sacrifice of Jesus. We talked about the prodigal son's return to the Father and how the Father welcomes, the forgiving Father welcomes us back into his arms. How great is our God in that? And then... Last week and this week, we'll talk about discipleship or disciple-making, about how to follow Jesus, that this commandment that Christ has given us in Matthew chapter 28, this commandment to go and make disciples of the entire world, to baptize them and to teach them everything that Christ has taught us, and we are called towards that. We've been commissioned towards that. If you, if I have been saved by Jesus, we've been commissioned to go and make disciples. We've been commissioned to multiply to take what we've been given and to share that with others. We talked about last week the necessity, the moment where in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, the disciples saw Christ and they worshipped him, yet some of them still doubted. We talked about the terrible Greek word there, distazo, this double stance, that you're standing with two opinions. Do I take the opinion that I believe Christ and everything that he says to be true and so I follow him or do I take the opinion that he may not know everything and so if he may not know everything I don't want to put all my faith in him so we stand there double stance a doubted stance saying what is it is Christ really it does he have all authority and Christ reminds them those disciples there and he reminds us today even in 18, 19 and 20 that all authority has been given to him not just on earth, but in heaven also. And with that being said, no longer should we stand doubting Christ, but instead we stand in assurance of who he is, of what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. And with that, we go and multiply. With that, we go and make disciples of Jesus. And so as we look at this morning, I want to remind you that disciple-making is costly. It's going to cost you. All right, It's going to cost you. Think about the one that we're trying to make disciples of, Jesus. Did it cost him anything? It cost him everything. He did not take the stance of being in heaven and coming down to earth and take it lightly. He chose to be like us. He didn't have to be, but he chose to be like us, to walk like us so that he could save us. It cost him greatly. Then on this earth, as he walks and as he teaches and as he heals and gives hope and offers life, offers sustenance for people, he's humiliated, he's rejected. It costs him those things. Even the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. It costs him greatly. And then he sacrificed himself for you and I and for the rest of the world. It cost him greatly. And this is who we follow. And this is who we want others to follow. So disciple-making is, is a great sacrifice, really. It's going to cost you something. 
If you look at your life right now and you say, well, I've been making disciples and it hasn't cost me anything, are you truly making a disciple of Jesus? You have to evaluate that. Maybe you can justify that, and I'd love for you to to chat with me and convince me of that. Not in an argument, but just convince me so I can be along with you. Say, you know what, disciple-making isn't a sacrifice. It doesn't cost us anything. It's free. It's it's easy. It's it's simple. It's It's so basic. We don't have to worry or have stress or anxiety about it. When I read Scripture and when I look at what it costs Christ, I see that disciple-making, to be a disciple, really means to make sacrifices. You need to be aware of that. To, do, to, to be a disciple really means to follow. It means to follow the one that you're being discipled by. And so as a disciple, you recognize that I'm following Christ and that I'm leading others to follow Christ. It's a follow-the-leader type of thing. Uh, many years ago, we were on our first trip to the reservation, uh, we left Albuquerque and we drove to Gallup and we turned right and then we came to a fork in the road and we turned left and then we came to a coffee can and we turned right and then we saw a Mountain Dew can and we turned left and then we saw and just kept going and going and going like, where are we going? Have you been here before? I've never been here before. Has anybody else? No, we've never been. Are we even headed in the right direction? We need a good leader. Who's going to stand up and be a good leader? Is that not the world today? Many people going about not knowing anything about direction not knowing where they should go, not knowing where hope and satisfaction actually comes from. So to make disciples is to be a follower who's leading other people to the one that you're following. Let me lead you to Christ because he's the way, he's the truth, he is the life. And to be a disciple really means to multiply. You have to evaluate yourself and say, am I making sacrifices to make disciples? Am I actually leading people to follow Jesus as a disciple? And am I multiplying? You know, we, we joke about that, and I think men would probably joke more than women about being fruitful and multiply when we hear that in, in the Old Testament. And some men say, oh, let's, take, let's take a hold of that greatly. Let's be fruitful. Let's multiply. As disciple makers, this is one of our calls on our life to multiply, N- not to keep it to ourselves, but to give it to others so that they can be disciples who make disciples. Talked to you about three other terrible words last week. The words flexibility, the words compassion, and the words time. Those are the three things that if you're going to make disciples of Christ, that's what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you to be flexible. I mean, think about flexibility in the, in the sense of being a parent, because really, disciple-making is like parenting. It's not like being an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or even a grandparent, where you can send people away and not invest anymore. I remember when I first married into Mandy's family, her older brother already had, had kids, and I became immediately marrying into the family. I became an uncle. I thought it was the greatest thing. You get to, uh, to give candy and, and spoil and, and lead them and mislead them and, and get them to do things that you would never have your own child do because you're the uncle. That's not really my kid. In fact, I'm just married into the family. How often we take this uh, the same way with disciple-making. We think it's just something we can just hand off to someone else. Disciple-making is like parenting. And when we think about flexibility, think about parenting and parents that you know that have to be flexible. In fact, parenting is so costly and, and the flexibility is so stretching, sometimes there's stretch marks left over from being a parent scars, battle wounds, places that you can look back and say, I have this or this because of parenting. 
Disciple making is the same way. We have to be flexible. I can't do that right now because you're in my way. We've got to be flexible. We've got to look at this and say, you are worthy of my time. You're worthy of my compassion. You're worthy of me being flexible for because I'm leading you to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We just sang about Christ's outstretched arms on the cross. So thankful that in the garden the night before, as he's sweating blood, that he didn't think, you know what, no longer will I stretch. No longer will I be flexible for the sake of these people. So thankful that he wasn't selfish in that. But instead he said, I will be flexible. I will stretch out my arms for the sake of saving the world so that my sacrifice may be the last one that ever needs to be made so that my blood that's shed for these people will be forgiven. The sins of them will be forgiven forever. Disciple-making means being flexible. It means being compassionate, especially when you're the one not experiencing the pain. Have you ever had, if you're a parent, or maybe you know a parent, or maybe you had a parent, uh, you can think back to, to the moment where you were experiencing uh, some pain, and you want everybody else to feel that same pain, and you know the trouble that you're going through. And it's, it's one thing to experience the pain yourself, but when your child is experiencing the pain, and you can't feel that, you can only experience it through their pain, through their that's when compassion comes in. Are you really hurt? Do, do you really need a Band-Aid? I mean, come on, are, are you serious about needing medicine? Have you ever said these things as parents? It's where compassion comes in. And as a parent, you're lovingly compassionate towards your child. And you say, you may not need the Band-Aid because it's not really going to help, but I want to help you in this moment. I want to have compassion for you in your pain in this moment. And so I'm going to guide you in the direction that I think that you need to go. Maybe I have to be stern with you. Maybe I have to hold you accountable and say, that's not really a cut. That's not really an an issue. That's not really a pain. Let me lead you through this. Why are you think? Why do you feel this way? Why Why do you think that you're experiencing the pain that you're experiencing? Let me help you and guide you in that. As a disciple maker, you're going to have compassion for those like our Savior does. He sees the the crowds. He sees them as helpless, as harassed, as sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. He's cut to the heart. His gut hurts. He aches for these people. He has empathy. He wants to step in their shoes and and help them along the way. That's why I say disciple-making is costly. Because most of the time, we would rather just shut those things out. I don't want to experience their pain. If it's my pain, it's my pain. I don't want to experience anyone else's pain. But a disciple maker says, I'm going to be flexible, and I am going to have compassion towards those who need Jesus. And then making disciples is going to cost you time. Mostly all of your time. Not just some of it, but think about parenting. Parenting costs you all of your time. You give it all up for the sake of the child. You say, this child is worthy of my time. I want to have compassion towards them. I'm going to be flexible with the things I want to do. I'm not putting them as an idol or above me, but I want them to be led in the direction and train them in the way that they should go so that they bring honor and glory to the Father who has created them. And so I'm going to give up my time for the sake of making a disciple. John Ortberg, he's an author, pastor. He says this, Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love and hurry. Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people don't have. 
We live in a hurried society. We live in a fast-paced, get me there now, actually get me there yesterday, why aren't we already there kind of society. And with that, we don't take the time to have flexibility in our lives. We don't take the time to have compassion in our life. And we don't take the time, the time, and use it for the one who's worthy of all of our time. Instead, we use it for ourselves. So love and hurry, they can't go together. They're incompatible. We have to look at and say, if we're going to love like Christ loves, we've got to be willing to give up time. We've got to be willing to be compassionate. We've got to be willing to be flexible. Anybody ever met an orphan? Maybe you were one at one time. Uh, orphans uh, are, are an interesting human. Abandoned, however it may be. An orphan, one who does not have a mother or a father who wants to or can take care of them. Orphans. We see videos about them. We're, we're moved by them. We see their, the need for them to have love. We see the need for them to be cared for. And so we give money towards things. Or maybe you're moved to, to, help, uh, to help even adopt this orphan because they're in need of love. They're in need of compassion. They're in need of someone who will be flexible enough to give up their time for this orphan. We're, we're, my family is a little bit familiar with an orphan or a couple of orphans. We, we, um, we years ago, and I've told you this story before, but years ago, Mandy and I set out and said, the Lord wants us to adopt. And particularly, we feel like God wants us to adopt someone who no one else wants. And one of our girls is that very story. Someone who was abandoned at the hospital. Someone who said, you know what, family said, we do not want this child. And it cuts to your heart. You feel it in your gut. You're saying, what, how could anyone, how could anyone who doesn't love, how, how could that even be the case? Christian, think for a moment. Not to toy with your emotions. Not to try and motivate you or persuade you or sell you to something that you don't already or are not already aware of. We have a, a ton, thousands, if not millions of spiritual orphans in the world are waiting for the inheritance through Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility that we've been the ones that have commissioned, been commissioned to go and make disciples and to train them in the way that they should go. Can an orphan live? Can an orphan survive? It's been proven. Some have. I didn't grow up with parents. I didn't have this. I didn't have these things. And I'll, Look at me now. Maybe an orphan can survive. But an orphan needs someone to love them, to show compassion to them, to be flexible with them, to give time to them. An orphan needs someone to teach them in the way that they should go. Teach them in the new life. When we adopted our, our girls, we had to stand before the judge and swear to some things. Do you swear to take care of this child? Do you swear never to, uh, to harm this child? Do you swear to never abandon this child? We do swear. We swear by that. We will never harm this child. We will never abandon this child. This child will never be abandoned again. Can you imagine at that moment if, if when the judge said, okay, I rule in favor of this, this family. Congratulations, you just adopted this, this child. And we all celebrate. And, whew, that was great. Wow, incredible moment. Okay, see you guys later. And just walk away from the child and abandon them again. It completely defeats the whole purpose. No, you chose to be a disciple. Now you're choosing to follow in the commission that Christ has called us to do. And so with that, you have a responsibility to make disciples, make disciples of Jesus Christ, not to abandon 
orphans again, but instead to train them in the new life that they've been given. New last name in our case. Uh, you adopt and you give a child a new last name. You give them a new life. They've been newly created as someone different. Their identity has changed. And so now we train them in the way that they should go. That's disciple making. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Here we have the Israelites. They're about to cross over into the land that the Lord has promised them. And so he begins this new contract with them. He gives them a new way to live. He says, I want you to, I want you to live this way. You've been freed from slavery. You've been freed by the power of God. And so because of that, I'm giving you new life. And this is the way that I want you to live. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandments, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Evangelism, fear of God. How, how great is our God? All struck with respect, fear and respect for the God that we have. That you may do them in the land that you to which you are going over to possess it, and that you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's sons. This is a generational thing. This is a multiplication thing. This is a passing along what God has taught, continuing it on. It never stops. That you may fear the Lord, verse 2 says, uh, the Lord your God, and that your son, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, in verse 3, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. See, as many of you probably do, and as many of you are probably aware, I feel like the entire scripture points towards our life in Christ. And this example here is giving us an example or giving us a, a preface of what Christ is going to do. This promised land that we have, this promised perfect place that we have because of our Savior that we get to look forward to. And so in our case, we're not Israel, but in our case, we get to multiply. We get to make disciples showing them the way, the truth, and the life so that they may make disciples, showing others the way, the truth, and the life. And here we go in verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. F first responsibility as one who's going to make disciples is to remind yourself and the one that you're discipling daily that there is only one God. There are no other gods. There is only one God. And we serve and worship Him and Him alone. We have to be reminded of that. In the world that we live in today, there are many other little g-gods that, that try and come in. Uh, and maybe they're gods of other religions, or maybe they're gods that we make up today. I read a great article years ago when Baal, uh, or Baal, some of you call him Baal, when ba Baal or Baal becomes, becomes God, or becomes an idol, or becomes Baal. When ball becomes ball, when football, baseball, basketball, tennis, all these sports, when they become our idol, when they become our God, what do we do when a, when a thing of this earth becomes our God? How do we deal with that? We remind ourselves daily. We preach the gospel to ourselves daily. There is only one God who's worthy of all our time, all our flexibility, all our compassion. There is only one God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Remember Jesus teaching this in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, he tells the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, but he starts the story with the question. Someone asks him, what's the greatest commandment? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. When we're making disciples, we're teaching folks, we're teaching others that there is one God and we love him with everything that we are. Every moment, every time, every flexible time, every compassion, every love, everything that we are, we love God. Verse 6 says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. See, this is true disciple making. You take every moment of life, and you're teaching people. The one that you're discipling, you're teaching them about God. Use every moment, every circumstance. Maybe I've shared this story with you before. We had a parent approach us one time in ministry and say, I really want to teach my younger children about forgiveness, about Christ and and his sacrifice, but I'm not even sure how to do that. Like, oh, okay, well, uh, you, you scripture. Uh, what, what do you know about Christ? What, what does scripture point you to? Or what, what is it that you understand about forgiveness and about salvation? And, and she says, uh, well, I know that he removes our, our sins by his sacrifice. I'm like, okay, well, have you ever removed a stain from something as a parent? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, the next time you're about to remove that stain, bring your child in and teach them about removing a stain and the difficulties of markers on walls or baseball pants with dirt and mud and whatever else, grape snow cone. Teach them about removing those stains and then lead them in the direction of, hey, let me teach you even greater than this. We can maybe get this stain out with some kind of shout business, all right? But the stain of sin cannot be removed by shout. The stain of sin cannot be removed by detergent. The stain of sin cannot be removed by antibacterial. It can only be removed by the blood of Jesus. Every moment of our lives, we're looking for an opportunity to point people towards Christ. We read it again, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. An indictment on the churches, we talk about a lot of things. We do not talk about Jesus enough. We point people in a lot of directions. We do not point them to Christ enough. We have lots of conversations, and I'm guilty as just as anyone else is, or maybe I'm the only one guilty. We have lots of conversations, but, enough, but not enough conversations about, about who Christ is, about what God has done, about what he's doing and what he's going to do. Let's continue on. Verse 8 says this, You shall bind them on a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. See, see, as the Israelites were about to enter into this new land, the Lord was concerned that they may go back to their old ways. What God had freed them from, He was concerned that they may try and return to. They may look backwards and say, those things were so good. Let me go back to those things. So God's saying, in my concern that you may go backwards, that you may look back to the past, you may look back to what life was like, you may forget about what I've done for you. And so write them everywhere. 
Put them on your forehead so you see it. Put them on your hands so you remember it. Teach them at every moment of the day so that you're reminded of who God of who God is. Verse 10, And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not feel, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. How often... In everyday moments, do we forget that it is the Lord who has provided these things? We try and teach our children when we sit down to eat, we don't need long prayers. We just need to be thankful to the Lord. Lord, you have provided yet another meal for us. We know there are those in this world who have, who are longing for a meal. And here, God, you have yet provided another meal for us. Mama didn't just cook it. She's not the one who created it, but instead it came from God. God provided this. Let us not forget who did these things. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, this is a reminder. When we're making disciples, we're reminding people of who did the work. It's not about your chart, your stars, your achievements, but it's only about Christ. Who did this work? Who completed the work? Christ did the work. Christ completed the work. Not on your own will, not on your own works, but instead, as we make disciples, we remind people Christ is the one who did the work. Verse 13, And as the Lord your God, you shall fear. Wh- whom should we fear? We fear only God. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Who should we serve? We should serve only the Lord. We look at our everyday life. Paul tells us, you look at serving your earthly masters like you're serving the Lord, as if you're working for the Lord, living life on mission, as if you're working for the Lord. Who do you serve? We serve the Lord. Verse 14, a great, another great reminder. And you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. Think about, in our day and time, what those gods may be. Maybe it is a statue. Maybe it is a golden man or animal. Or maybe it is a golden building. Maybe it's a golden book or a golden plaque. More than likely, the people that you're around, their gods look more like pride look more like lust, look more like money, look more like material things, more like labels, titles, authority, whatever it may be. Those are the gods that are around us. They're trying to control us and take over us. If I just had more power, if I just had more pride, if I just had more money, if I just had more things, then I could be this. Then I could be satisfied. If I just had this, if I just had this. And those are the things that control us. So verse 14 says this, You shall not go after other gods. Your entire life, my entire life, as a disciple who's making disciples, I want my life to be going after the one true God, not these other false gods. You shall not go after these other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your, is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to, to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. So do you see this urgency here? Do you see that why Christ, as he's about to ascend into heaven, commissions his disciples with a commandment? Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them everything that I have commanded you to do. I'm sending you into this new life. With one sacrifice that's done it forever, I'm sending you into this new life. So go and follow this commandment. You see the urgency here. This new contract that's being formed for the Israelites. As you enter into this new life, don't go backwards. As you enter this, into this new life, don't fall back into the old ways. Don't worship false gods. Don't follow false teachings. Don't be distracted or, or persuaded to live a life that's not worthy of what God has done for you. And then I feel like it gets really, really good here. Verse 18, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and they may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. And as a reminder, verse 20 comes in and says this, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Is that not the question of the world today? Why do you actually even follow Jesus? Why do you attend a worship service? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you memorize those verses? Why do you sing those songs? Why do you go to those events? What's the case? Why are you even doing that? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give us, our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. So, so, so you're to tell the younger generation. You're to tell the one that you're discipling when they ask, well, why is it that we do these things? Why is it that you're charged with teaching me everything that Christ has done? But, well, why is that? Because we have to be reminded of what God has done. He has freed us from the slavery of sin. You know those little G gods that we mentioned earlier? Pride and money and lust and greed and jealousy and bitterness and anger and all those things? He's freed you from that. No longer bound to those things. Instead, you can be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. We don't have to live this life in search of anything because we have been found and the one who found us has saved us and gives us eternal life, preserves our souls forever. And so we follow him and we make disciples of him because he's worthy of that. Let me read it to you again. The Lord, uh, verse, uh, verse 21, Then you shall say to your son, we, are, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty with a mighty hand. We were slaves to sin. The Lord brought us out of slavery to sin with a mighty hand. 
with outstretched arms, flexible enough to save you and me, with blood that has forgiven and removed the stain forever. Man, how great is our God? How hospitable of him to give us entry into his kingdom by his son. And with that, we are charged to go and make disciples. Our brothers and sisters over at First Baptist Denver City live kind of under this motto, fulfilling the great commission by our commitment to the great commandments while continually multiplying. Fulfilling the great commission. The great commission. You remember at Matthew 28 that we would go and make disciples of Jesus, baptizing, teaching them the way that Christ teaches us to go, teaching, uh, teaching others how to live the new life that Christ has given us, fulfilling the great commission by our commitment to the great commandment, the great commandments. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself while continually multiplying. Christ has saved us so that we could be used by him as ministers of reconciliation, so that we go and make disciples of Christ so they also can be saved. Christian, if you're here this morning, remind yourself that God with a mighty hand, with his son's outstretched arms, has saved you from the slavery of sin and has given you life to live forever. And with that, you go and you make disciples. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never confessed Christ as Lord of your life. Maybe you're still a slave to sin. Uh, this morning would be a great time for you to say, confess, I want Christ to free me from slavery of sin. I want to live for him forever because he's worthy of that. Flexibility, compassion, time. It's going to cost you. It costs Christ. It's going to cost you. Go and make disciples. Let's pray. God, thank you for seeing our need. seeing that we are incapable of saving ourselves, providing a 